If you brought your Bible this morning, you can head back to the book of John. We are continuing this morning to learn what it means to be a follower, or the Bible's word for it, a disciple of Jesus. And as we walk from beginning to end through the book of John, we're going to see that, that truth, that call unfold. Um, this morning, I'm beginning what will ultimately be a two-part sermon part one this morning uh, because uh, the story that we're going to look at in John chapter four is called The Woman at the Well. It is a huge passage of scripture, but it's also a really powerful and really important passage of scripture. There are really only two characters, two very important characters, Jesus and this woman, and they meet at a well. Today, my hope and prayer is that as we come to the scripture, that we might put ourselves in the shoes of the woman and think through the reality of what her situation was and how that is also very much our situation. And then next week as we finish out this same passage that we're going to come back to it, and by God's grace, seek to understand how does New City try to put ourselves in the shoes of Jesus and walk in His footsteps. Not that we will be perfect like Jesus, but that we have been called to be a part of His message. And so how can we treat the woman at the well and our entire culture the way that Jesus demonstrates it for us to be done here in this passage? So um, I'm going to read the scripture here in just a second, Um, but let me pray first today. Heavenly Father, God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the good news. Lord, we thank you that regardless of what we have brought in here this morning, that your grace is enough, that your grace and your love are big enough, Lord, that your ability to forgive and to save, to pay the penalty for my sins is far bigger, Lord, than my ability even to run away from you and to continue to make mistakes and to sin. Lord, we thank you that you love us in that way. Lord, uh, help us to learn as we look at this passage and, and see in a fresh way the power and, and even the width of your gospel. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Four applications that we're going to walk through this morning as we look at verses 1 through 26. Those four applications, real quick, right off the bat, are this. Number one, the gospel is for all people. Number two, the gospel is living water. Number three, the gospel is truth and grace. And number four, that the gospel brings true worship. So let's begin. Number one, the gospel is for all people, and we see this most clearly demonstrated in verses one through nine. Again, this is a very long passage, so we're going to take it a chunk at a time. So read with me now verses one through nine to get things started. Beginning in verse one, this is the English Standard Version. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So we've got the context now. Jesus has left a place called Judea. He's headed to Galilee. Now begins the story. Verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. 
for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And in parentheses here, John tells us, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Two incredibly important phrases that jump right out here in verses 1 through 9. The first is the statement that John makes about the situation that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Quick geography lesson. I love geography. There are three parts to Israel. In the north was Judea, in the center, Samaria, and in the south is Galilee. Jesus is coming from Judea, and he is going to the south to Galilee. So logically, one would think that he would need to pass through Samaria that is in the middle. But understand right off the bat, geography did not compel Jesus to walk through Samaria. Love did. Jesus' love is what compelled him. See, the shortest way, absolutely, to get from Judea to Galilee was to walk right through Samaria. We can go math on that, right? The shortest distance between two points is a straight line. However, in that culture, that never happened. Jewish people disliked Samaritan people so much that the well-worn path to get from Judea back down to Galilee was to literally make a massive turn and go all the way around Samaria and then back in to get to Galilee because of their dislike and frankly their hatred of Samaritans. They would take the long way around. So when it says Jesus had to, He had to go that way because he chose to go that way because he was seeking out this Samaritan woman. And that should tell us a lot about who Jesus is. And it helps us put our feet into the shoes of this woman as well. The second really, really important phrase that comes out of this opening passage here is her response. She says, rightly so, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? There are a couple of things that she is very keen on that have been a part of her story in her life that is deeply tragic and regrettable, but she knows those things to be true, and so what Jesus is doing is absolutely shocking to her. First of all, Samaritans, that group of people, they were half Jewish and half Gentile. The history behind that, see, 750 years Before this conversation that we are witness to right now between Jesus and the woman, that northern half of the Jewish nation, most of which is Judea, they were ripped from their homes by what was known then as the Assyrian Empire. This was a horrific moment in their history. Many, many people were killed and those that survived were carted out of the country and relocated thousands of miles away. And then that Assyrian Empire brought back in their own people to live in the land of Israel, and those people who did not know God and had no desire to know God began over time to marry in with the very few Jews that were still in the area, and generation after generation, those children and children's children became known as the Samaritans. In the Old Testament, in the Scripture, God Himself had forbidden the Old Testament people, His people, He had told them specifically, do not marry outside of the Jewish faith. 
Do not marry outside of this culture and do not marry a person who does not know and love and follow God. And so very much the Samaritan people, the root of their story was because of a disobedience by the Jews in this area. Those people and the children that resulted, the Samaritans, they did not follow God. But what the Jews did with that fact was they radically dehumanized an entirely brand new race of people. They rejected them entirely. The woman at the well is well aware of her history and her story. The second thing that's going on here, though, is simply that she is a woman, and typically in that culture, Jewish men did not speak to women in public. The Scripture did not instruct this. This was just the tradition of the time. But also, she is a woman at a well, and the Scripture tells us for a reason what time it was. This seems like a throwaway detail, but understand there are no throwaway details in Scripture. It says it was the sixth hour. In that culture, the way that they told time, sixth hour was high noon. It was the heat of the day. It was the time when you don't want to be outside, much like 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. here in Florida, 11 and a half months out of the year. So you can identify what's going on. Respectable women gathered to draw water from the well in the morning when it was still cool outside. This woman is here at noon because she was publicly known not to be a respectable woman. And so whether it was by force or by choice, either way, she came for water when no one else was around. But Jesus, again, but Jesus was compelled by his love. He chose to go that way because he was seeking out this Samaritan woman. Here, Jesus rips in half for us the racism, the sexism, and the elitism of the world. The gospel is good news for all people. And so Jesus is going to go to all people. And to see that reality played out even further, so that we don't get tunnel vision on just this passage, it's important to recognize that John in the gospel has already actually given us this is the second example. And so we should compare the two. Because earlier in John chapter 3, we get this guy named Nicodemus. If you remember Nicodemus, and it, it is worth stopping and going, hey, Nicodemus and the woman at the well, these two people could not be further apart in terms of their story, who they were, their identity. Nicodemus was an influential, educated man. The woman at the well was an unbelieving, uneducated woman. He was a full-blooded Jew. She was a Samaritan. They would have referred to as some sort of a half-breed. Again, they... they disliked, they hated her simply because of that reality. He had a very high Greek name, Nicodemus. She is given no name in this passage, not that she didn't have one, but it illustrates the difference here between these two, these two people's experience and shows us all the more how much Christ's love goes after both of them. He thought of himself as highly moral. He wasn't, but he thought of himself as having it all together. She knew that she was immoral, to her credit. He 
Nicodemus, comes to Jesus at night because he wants to protect his reputation. But she has no reputation to protect, and so she comes in the middle of the day to draw her water. It is not an accident, is my point, that John gives us the story of Nicodemus and then back-to-back gives us the story of the woman at the well because both of these people, and this is what our culture desperately needs to know and does not understand, both of these people equally needed the gospel and both of these people equally were being invited by Jesus into a saving relationship with him. Do you understand that? Do you see that here from the scripture? See, only at the foot of the cross does the world have a chance of coming together. The world wants to divide us and is doing a very good job, but Jesus always wants to unite, and the unity is found in his love, in the good news of the gospel, and there is no second option. Our culture will tell us over and over and over, regardless of what side, what person, what group of people, our culture tells us the problem is not with me or with my camp, the problem is with them. The problem was with that person. But the gospel doesn't say that, right? Our world tells us that we're not that bad, especially when we compare ourselves to that other type of person. They're the worst, but all people are sinful and hopeless outside of Jesus, and all people have salvation and hope in the gospel. Every woman or man, every person, old or young, rich or poor, uneducated or educated, Hispanic, black, white, Asian, the gospel is for all of us. Hallelujah. Thank God. So what is this good news that Jesus wants to tell this woman about this day? Number two, the gospel is, says Jesus, living water. The gospel is living water. Look at verses 10 through 15 now. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So to follow Jesus where he wants to take us, We've got to leave behind the differences between this this man, Nicodemus, and this woman of the well and see all the more what they have in common and what we have in common with them as we put our feet in her shoes. See, because most of us today, we all tend to act like them. They acted like they were all right without Jesus. We tend to approach our reality that way as well. I don't really need Jesus. My life is fine the way it is. Both Nicodemus and the woman and us begin, they are, and we hopefully are beginning to realize that comfort, the comforts of this world do not satisfy. The earthly water from the well, if you will, 
does not in itself satisfy because you will always be thirsty again. They both also have a materialistic understanding of the world. They do not yet understand spiritual things because the Holy Spirit has not yet begun to work in their hearts and minds. And so for Nicodemus, he hears a conversation, if you remember a couple weeks ago, about the new birth. And he thinks that Jesus is literally talking about being born again as an adult. He doesn't understand fully the spiritual ramifications. And here, this woman hears Jesus' offer, and she ends it by saying, Help me get this water out of the well that you are talking about so that I won't be thirsty anymore. They don't yet understand the spiritual message that is being offered to them. Now, for us, we have a hard time, I think, in the United States understanding what thirst really is, particularly in a desert region of the Middle East. I've been thirsty, but I've never been thirsty like that. We can't necessarily imagine what it would be like to be traveling through an open, hot, arid desert, desperately looking for water that is, first of all, even safe to drink. If I find it, then I've got to make sure that it is clean water because water is life. People and animals would routinely die in that culture if they ran out of water. Now, thinking about this woman who was thirsty, what had her morning been like, do you think? The Scripture does not tell us, but we can imagine, had she been mocked by the other Samaritan woman, women on her way that day to get water? Or had she experienced some sort of hostility from the Jewish men who maybe were walking past her? We don't know. But we do know that when she saw Jesus already sitting at the well, she knew it was a man, she knew that he was a Jew, she was not about to start a conversation with him. No way. But Jesus spoke to her, didn't he? Jesus reaches out to her. Jesus continues to pursue her even in the conversation. See, all of us. If Jesus was sitting at the well and we came to that well and needed water, we wouldn't talk to Jesus either. We would let him sit there forever. But instead, Jesus came to find her. Jesus came to offer her living water. Jesus initiated the conversation with her because that is God's love. Not only that, but God alone can quench the thirst of humanity who is desperately in need of living water. In the Old Testament, in Jeremiah chapter 2, incredibly famous passage, but it encapsulates the reality of what well are we drinking from? Listen to verse 13. For my people, this is God speaking, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. This means instead of following the living and true God who provides everything that I need I will never be thirsty again. Instead, I run to the, the things of this world, the sins of this world, the entertainment and the comforts of this world, and they are jars of water that begin broken. What happens with a broken jar? The water falls out. It's an empty jar. Pursuing anything less than Jesus is an empty promise. And when we pursue the things of this world, it is inevitably an empty promise. And then Jesus says one more thing. Don't miss this. 
He says, the water I give will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. None of us has ever gone to a well, not that you went to a well recently, but none of us has ever gone to a well and seen the water bubble up. Well water is down there. But what Jesus is saying here is there is a miracle spiritually that takes place where that well water becomes a spring bubbling up of living water. See, Jesus is promising not only the salvation or justification that comes with his living water, he's also promising the sanctification that when the Holy Spirit fills us that we continue to grow and be filled to overflowing with the same good news of the gospel that we can't help but grow in our following of Jesus, that he is beginning to refine us more and more into the image of Jesus as we follow him, that the reality of his joy, we can't help but talk about it and live it out and share it with others. He is promising not only living water in a well, but that that well would bubble up to overflowing in our lives, and that is important for you and I. Because as believers, we inevitably will struggle. We will make mistakes. We will reject the Lord in little ways and in big ways. We will, to follow the metaphor, pour dirt all over the well, blocking that spring. But God's grace, that spring will continue to flow up. So believer, even when you make bad decisions, and you will, even when you are hard-hearted, even when you chase the things of this world that are such dry and empty cisterns, and we could name a million, but whether you are chasing alcohol or pornography or money or bad relationships or bitterness or whatever it may be, there is the grace that saves and there is that bubbling fountain, the grace that changes and calls us back. And so when Jesus says he is living water, he is speaking to you and saying, will you renounce those empty jars that maybe you have gone back to again. Or maybe for the first time, will you give your life to Jesus and say, I've I've tasted these empty jars and they do not work. They're broken. They're filthy. I want the living water that only Jesus can bring. Jesus is not done though. Number three, in this conversation, we see this next. The gospel is truth and grace. And we're going to major here for a second on the truth side. The gospel is perfectly truth and grace. Look at verses 16 through 20 now. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus gives a startling word of truth. See, the gospel allows us, it allows us, it empowers us to tell the truth about who we are. The ugly stuff, the messy stuff. Up to this point, the woman still does not see why she needs living water. She's heard the good news, but she still doesn't understand the bad news. Believing the gospel means admitting the truth of our own sin. Look at what Jesus says in the book of Mark. This is Mark chapter 2, verse 17. 
Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. If you think that you are fine without Jesus, then he will let you continue on your way, but you have to recognize that there is a problem and the solution is him. So Jesus says to her, go call your husband. She says, I have no husband. Jesus knows this already. That's why he brought up the conversation. Jesus knows her heart. Jesus knows your heart. Whether you've given it to him or not, Jesus knows everything. He's God. He knows our hearts. He knows our secret sins already, which is a phenomenal comfort if you know the grace of Jesus. In fact, look at Hebrews chapter 4. It says this, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So Jesus says, you have had five husbands, and the one now you have isn't your husband. And she admits, that's true, she admits it. But then she wants to change the subject very quickly, doesn't she? There's such shame. And Jesus is not interested in shaming her. He is interested in showing her the bad news so that she might receive the good news. But she's not quite there yet. And so to get out of that conversation immediately, she asks a great hot topic religious political question to get a debate going because she knows that Jews and Samaritans have very different opinions on the topic of proper worship. She drops the worship bomb into the conversation. This would be like pulling together 10 different churches from 10 different denominations and saying, what's the right way to lead a worship service? She wants to get the spotlight off of her and talk about something else. And it's a pretty smart move on her part. But here's the deal. You can't avoid your sin. Even if you want to avoid the conversation with Jesus for now, you cannot avoid the reality of your sin. Jesus' word has already jolted her to her senses, and we're seeing God continue to work in her heart as we unfold this story. Go call your husband. It's a word for her conscience to help her recognize she's a sinner. But what does Jesus say in the very same sentence? And this is so important. In the very same sentence, Jesus says, when you have done that, come back again. Come back back again. That is a word for her heart because Jesus is communicating up front that there is forgiveness. There is not rejection. There is salvation. So come back again. Confess freely, Lord, I am a sinner and you have made a way for me to be forgiven. Fourth and finally, the gospel brings true worship. This is verses 21 through 26. Jesus said to her, verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now catch this. But the hour is coming. And is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. He's seeking one right now. Verse 24, God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. She's on the right track. 
Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. I'm the Messiah. Notice what Jesus does. He does not dodge her question. He goes straight to the heart of the matter. He answers her question and in so doing, brings it back to the truth that he wants her to see and to receive. So he explains very briefly that the Jews had filled a unique place as the Jewish nation, as God's chosen people. They hold a unique place in human history of salvation. Salvation came through the nation of Israel. But Jesus says this, a new day is here. And this applies so much. Understand, a new day is here when national distinctions would pass away, when all people would worship God in spirit and in truth on the basis of faith alone in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. All people. So the same religious and and racial tension that the woman lives under personally has also affected worship as a whole in these multiple cultures. The Jews did not allow the Samaritan people to be involved in their worship. So the Samaritans, in response, built their own temple. But it was done without God's instruction. It was done without God's blessing. You've got two rival religions. They're both angry at each other. This is such a snapshot of our world, isn't it? They're both angry at each other. They're both missing the mark. They're both missing Jesus. Jesus prophesies a time when salvation will be offered worldwide through the perfect sacrifice that only He can provide in His death on the cross. So the temple and animal sacrifices that have been a part of Israel's worship for thousands of years are coming to an end. At the moment of Jesus' death on the cross, what happened? Do you remember? There was an earthquake, and it shook the very foundations of the temple. It's not coincidence, guys. And at the same moment, the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies, where the great high priest could only go in once a year to offer sacrifices for, on behalf of the sins of the people, That curtain that separated God from all of humanity, Jew and Gentile, that curtain was ripped in two from top to bottom the moment that Jesus died on the cross. The temple is now obsolete. That curtain is now obsolete. Sacrificing is now obsolete. And it does not matter, are you you gathering as Samaritans at Mount Gerizim or are you gathering as Jews in Jerusalem? Rather, All believers worldwide can now worship a God who is spirit and worship Him in spirit and in truth. What does that mean for us today? Worship is then more than just showing up on Sunday morning. It's not just a checklist. Did I come? Did I sing a song? Did I close my eyes during prayer? Rather, God is calling us to a spiritual worship. All those things are helpful things. All those things are aspects of worship. But Jesus is saying to go deeper because worship involves our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength, which is why back in Deuteronomy, he called us to love the Lord our God in such a way and then love our neighbor as ourselves. 
Worship in spirit involves all those things, heart, soul, mind, and body, as we declare God's worth, God's worth in worship, and we enjoy all that he is forever. But worship is also in truth, says Jesus here, not just looking, as is so easy to do, not just looking for warm fuzzies, not just showing up to feel better. The truth of who God is, is why and how we worship. So who God is, as revealed in Scripture, His love, His wisdom, His beauty, His power, His compassion, His justice, His mercy and grace on display, His worthiness is what we worship. We do not worship a God of our own making. We worship the God of the Scripture. We worship in spirit and in truth. And Jesus ends by looking at this woman who is beginning to put the pieces together. And when she brings up the topic of the Messiah, the Christ, it's the same word. He says, I who speak to you am he. It's interesting that he has a lot of conversations with a lot of religious and political elites throughout his three years of earthly ministry. And when they ask him the same question, he does not answer. But when this woman approaches Jesus now with a newfound humility, a new awareness of her sin, and a new awareness of the good news of the gospel of living water, when she says, I have heard that the Messiah is coming, Jesus looks her directly in the eye and says as clear as he can, I am the Messiah. And he does it in a way to be even more clear because the Greek words that he is speaking there, he says the phrase, I am. I am the most loaded language of all time that every Jew and every Samaritan completely understands. He's saying, not only am I the Messiah, I am God. The great I am, Jehovah, that is the name of God throughout the Old Testament and into the new. And so he is being very clear about it. And John, the writer of this gospel, wants us to be very clear about it. And so Jesus is gonna say in seven different ways in the gospel of John, I am You remember some of them? He's going to say, I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. He's the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. He's the fount of living water. His blood has been poured out for our salvation. It is good news for all people. So will you receive that good news? Let's take a moment and let's pray together.